This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find... Uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. That's the call that started it all. Former President Donald Trump speaking on the phone to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. It's what started the investigation that led to a Fulton County grand jury bringing 13 felony counts against the former president. Trump is facing his fourth criminal indictment, this time for attempting to overturn the 2020 election results in Georgia. A total of 41 counts here tell a story of what the indictment calls a criminal enterprise with a dozen and a half co-conspirators and the former president at the head. They're all charged under RICO, the Racketeer-Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. Trump has denied all of the charges, but the criminal cases against the presidential candidate are piling up. So how does the latest indictment fit in with all the others? This is 1A. I'm Todd Zwillick, in for Jen White, and you're listening to the 1A podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Today, we've got legal questions, political questions, and increasingly, constitutional questions. We'll get to all of that right after the break. Stay with us. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let's get right into it now with our guest. Joining us from Georgia is Stephen Fowler. He's a political reporter at Georgia Public Broadcasting. Stephen, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Also with us is Mary McCord. She's the executive director of Georgetown Law's Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection and a visiting professor of law. She's also a former federal prosecutor for nearly 20 years and a podcaster, beloved podcaster. Mary, great to have you. Glad to be here, Todd. And David Becker is executive director and founder of the Center for Election Innovation and Research. He's the co-author with Major Garrett of the book, The Big Truth. Upholding Democracy in the Age of the Big Lie. He's also a contributor at CBS News. David, great to talk to you again. Thanks for having me, Todd. Let's start down in Fulton County itself in Georgia before we talk about all the specifics of RICO charges and a sprawling alleged criminal conspiracy. Um, Stephen, you're down there in Atlanta. Donald Trump, indeed, all of the co-defendants, alleged co-conspirators are required to turn themselves in in Fulton County by Friday. Set the scene. What are you expecting? Well, I'm expecting, well, there's already a bit of a media circus down here in Atlanta. With the courthouse last week, there were national and even international TV cameras and reporters staked out for the news of this indictment. And uh, already there are people camped out at both entrances of the Fulton County Intake Center where all the co-defendants should be appearing to be arrested, booked, and then go on until their arraignment. Um, so that's what I'm expecting. Uh, it's, it's been a circus down here. 
Um, the deadline is Friday at noon. I would likely see most, if not all, of the people come in closer to that noon deadline, um, especially with all of the media attention. And Trump is maybe the obviously the biggest person people are watching for, but there's a lot to look at because he has Secret Service protection that has to be looped in. All of these people are negotiating with the district attorney's office and the sheriff for conditions and terms and communication because, you know, when you're the former president of the United States or part of this racketeering charge, you don't just walk in by yourself in through the front doors of the intake center into the jail. Mm -hmm. And you also aren't being let in in handcuffs like maybe some other people that go to the jail. And so the timing that I have heard estimated is Trump is negotiating coming in Thursday or Friday. Of course, Todd, it's important that Wednesday is the first Republican primary debate that Trump has signaled he's not showing up to. So there is the wild card possibility he could come in on Wednesday to overshadow the debate. But for now, the end of the week is when the next big action is expected to happen. Mary, um, this is important, though. After booking comes arraignment. Uh, Fannie Willis, the prosecutor there, says by uh, September 5th. But the rules and the law in Fulton County about being let out on bail are different than in other places. What's what's important here? Well, at arraignment, first of all, you know, the defendant here, we're talking about Mr. Trump and all the other 18, but we're focusing right now on Mr. Trump, will be, uh, the judge will make sure he understands the charges against him. And as you indicate, they'll set conditions of release or talk about detention. Now, the rules in Georgia are, are somewhat different in terms of um, what the criteria and factors are that a judge will consider in making a decision whether he can let somebody out, the judge can let somebody out on their own personal recognizance, or whether there should be other conditions of release, or whether there should actually be detention pretrial. But the Constitution is actually what governs when somebody can be de- detained pretrial. And regardless of what any state laws say, the Constitution requires that uh, a court, if it's going to detain someone pretrial, someone who is presumed innocent, just like you know, so many people face charges around the country every day, the judge can only detain that person if he finds by at least clear and convincing evidence that there's no condition or combination of conditions of release that would reasonably assure that the person would return to court as required um, and would not be a danger to the community or any other person. And that's a finding essentially that it's necessary to detain someone pretrial for one of those reasons, to prevent mm. flight or to preserve safety. So here in in, in Georgia, their law, it, it doesn't divert from that, but it does uh, say that that um, in order to release someone, the judge must find that they would not be a significant threat of harm to others. And of course, one of the overriding concerns in all of these cases is that Mr. Trump has quite an ability through his uh, incendiary rhetoric and his um, purported victimization and suggestion of weaponizations of both the federal and state departments of justice, that there's something wrongful about these prosecutions. And that that um, uh, trend, of you know, that practice of Mr. Trump really over the years, and certainly now that he's been facing these indictments, sometimes does lead people who are his supporters to make threats. We know that the FBI is investigating yeah. threats right well, now. Let me put that very Fulton question County. to David yes. Becker, because Mary, you raise a very important point. David, you're in close touch 
with the community of election workers and officials. And as Mary points out, uh, just in the last week, Trump has publicly said that a witness shouldn't testify. A supporter was arrested for threatening to kill the federal judge here in D.C. overseeing one of his cases. Trump said on social media, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. So what are you watching for? Yeah, Mary is exactly right. I mean, we have to remember that one of the underlying charges here in the Fulton County indictment is that there were lies spread and incitement to violence against a volunteer poll worker, Ruby Freeman, who we all remember from her testimony at the January 6th Select Committee. And she and her daughter continue to face ongoing harassment like so many election officials around the country. And it is a concern when you see this pattern of behavior continue where Mr. Trump and his supporters are actively, it appears, seeking to go after witnesses, go after grand jurors, go after election officials, go after volunteer poll workers. And I'm sure that's going to be an ongoing consideration. It's certainly something that we're also looking at in the federal indictments. Kathleen emails to say the indictments that Trump and many of his closest advisors are facing remind us that nobody is above the law. But I am galled, even outraged at the way members of Congress and even the current Republican presidential candidates refuse to condemn or even outright lie about what happened on January 6th. And that's an important thing for the debate on Wednesday. Will any of the candidates, except for the one or two who've made it their platform, speak in a meaningful way about what's at stake with all of these criminal charges and the protection of our democracy? Stay with us. We're going to talk a lot more about those accusations of intimidation later on, including of election workers, and what it means for the protection of our system going forward. That's right after a quick break. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit bluehost.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics. With vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. This message comes from Wired. On Wired Politics Lab, you will be guided through the exciting, challenging, and sometimes entertaining vortex of Internet extremism, conspiracies, and disinformation. Listen to Wired Politics Lab wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to our conversation now. I want to talk just a little bit more, especially with you, Mary, about what happens when Donald Trump um, goes before a judge to have his release conditions decided. And Doug emails, will Donald Trump's passport be turned over at this point or has it already been confiscated at an earlier court appearance? Is Donald Trump, I guess he's asking Mary McCord, uh, a flight risk? Well, you know, certainly in the two federal prosecutions brought by uh, special counsel Jack Smith, the government has not even asked for any special condition like turning over the passport or even any prohibitions on his travel, international or domestic. Now, I don't know what Fannie Willis might ask for. She may request that the passport be turned over. I will tell you that it is certainly the common practice when we are talking about white-collar crimes where an individual has 
money and means to travel, that it is pretty common for the passport to be turned over and travel to be restricted without the permission of the judge. All of that said, Mr. Trump is under constant 24-7 Secret Service protection. So that the idea that he could like flee to a foreign country hmm. and no one know about it, I think is just highly, highly unlikely. So I will be somewhat surprised if um, there is a requirement for him to turn over the passport. Although, again, if there is not, that will that will be different than the way others are treated. And given what Bonnie Willis and others have said about he'll be treated the same as everyone else, it could well be they'll ask for that to be turned over. And that question treated the same as everyone else, Stephen Fowler. Um, when Donald Trump goes before a magistrate judge, what do we know about the magistrate judges or who might be hearing his plea to be let go? I, I think it's sort of beyond the imagination that Donald Trump would be remanded, i.e. put in a jail cell pending trial. On the other hand, there is a case that he's been intimidating witnesses, intimidating prosecutors, attempting to interfere uh, with witnesses and jurors. He's got a long track record of doing it. So what might this look like? Well, and it's, I mean, speaking about, uh, you know, influencing witnesses and other things, that is part of this racketeering case uh, against Trump and others is, uh, one of the things under Georgia's racketeering law that is a predicate act of being charged with racketeering is influencing witnesses. So there's already an element of that here. There's already also an element since the indictments have come down of Trump saying, uh, you know, these people shouldn't testify. These people shouldn't show up. Um, but uh, as far as the judge, um, the judge in the Trump case is a relatively new to the bench judge. He's 34 years old. He was appointed by Governor Brian Kemp. So he has a more conservative pedigree. Uh, interestingly enough, everybody involved in this case is going to be on the ballot in 2024. The judge will be on the ballot. District Attorney Fonnie Willis will be on the ballot. Donald Trump will be on the ballot. And in some of the profiles that have come out of the judge so far, Scott McAfee, uh, people have said, uh, uh, somebody told the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, he's probably the best person I can think of to handle this case fairly and efficiently. Uh, so as far as that goes... You know, it will be interesting to see because it is not, you know, say a Democrat appointed judge or somebody who Trump and his allies can accuse off the bat of being partisan and unfair the way they've done with the Democratic district mm. attorney. Um, but as far as going before the judge for these initial appearances, you know, we don't know what's going to happen because on the one hand, everybody should be treated fairly in the eyes of the law. Everything should be treated equally. We've heard that with the booking and everything. But this case is so unlike anything that the Fulton County District Attorney's Office and the courts have experienced. And really, many of the courts have experienced with the degree that Trump is visible and vocal. He's attacked the prosecutor. He's attacked witnesses. He's attacked uh, just about everybody involved in this process well before the prospect of charges were even possible. And so we have seen, now that we have three other indictments to pull from, a pattern of the former president lashing out against the judges and the prosecutors and the witnesses and basically anybody involved in his way. And I don't expect this to be any different. So what the question will be, what does a state court judge decide to do and what does the state level district attorney decide to do in seeking to tamp down or rein in on these proclamations from Trump versus some of the other federal things that may be a little bit more 
judicial, pun slightly intended, Hmm. about their callings. And one thing I will note is that Trump was supposed to hold a press conference today where he was supposed to unveil a massive report of fraud in Georgia and exonerate him and release the charges, but uh, that got called back. And it appears that his lawyers in Georgia have so far tried to prevent what's played out with some of the other cases of him saying and doing things that don't help his case at all. Uh, from reining it in just a little bit. So anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. It seems to me that's that's the simple advice that his lawyers gave him uh, from holding yet another press conference where he uh, lies about the results of the elections. Michael emails to say anyone else who would have threatened witnesses and judges would have already been jailed. The Justice Department and courts have turned the other cheek until they're black and blue. That's Michael's take. Well, I want to make sure that we get into RICO and what it means because a RICO statute, that word racketeering, it's big. It reminds everyone of mob movies and rightfully so uh, because it has a lot to do with prosecuting the mob and we'll get into that too. But Mary, give us a sense of what RICO means. We'll talk about what it means in Georgia. But a racketeering case, this one alleges that Donald Trump is the head of a criminal enterprise. But the indictment has all kinds of scenes that, you know, somebody tweeted or somebody made a phone call and that this was in furtherance of the conspiracy. Making a phone call is not illegal, neither is tweeting. So that might be a little hard for people to understand. Right. So, you know, first of all, I think people sometimes maybe get confused about what criminal enterprise, you know, that was this some sort of an organization, legal entity. And uh, criminal enterprise can be a legal entity. It can be a company. It can be, you know, an organization that has some sort of official status. But it, it can also just be a group of individuals and the verbiage is associated in fact, even if not a legal entity. And that's the prong that Fannie Willis is relying on here, that Donald Trump and all of these other 18 uh, co-defendants now were involved in fact as a group of individuals coordinating together and conspiring to break a whole series of laws all leading to uh, undermining the election results in Georgia. And in other words, they don't have to have sat around a table and Donald That's Trump right. say, okay, gang, here's the plan. Get out there. That doesn't have to happen. That's exactly right. And so for racketeering under Georgia law, as under federal law, you, some of those underlying crimes have to be predicate crimes under the racketeering statute. So not every single crime you can commit is a predicate crime. And it's also the case that when you read the 161 overt acts in furtherance of this racketeering enterprise, this racketeering conspiracy, not all of them are crimes in and of themselves. So Fannie Willis will indicate after every overt act Either this was a racketeering activity under law and an overt act or just this was an overt act. So, for example, you were indicating tweets or texts or phone calls. Some of the phone calls are there just to tell tell the story and and to show that this was an overt act, something taken in furtherance of the objective of the the enterprise. Others are themselves freestanding crimes and crimes that are actually predicate crimes under the racketeering statute. So, for example, things like forgery, making false statements to uh, public officials, um, impersonating a public officer. And some of these go to the things that the fraudulent electors did, right? They were impersonating 
actually elected presidential electors uh, in Georgia when their candidate had lost, uh, or at least they're alleged to have been. They are alleged to have committed forgery in submitting these um, the certificate of their electoral college ballot. Uh, so, so a number of the overt acts, but not all of them, mm. listed in this lengthy indictment would make out predicate crimes under the racketeering law. Well, Stephen, we're obsessed with the big fish here. I guess there's no way around it. Uh, Donald Trump, the biggest of them all, Rudy Giuliani, um, Jeffrey Clark, John Eastman, Sidney Powell, the names we've heard. But on down the indictment are a lot of littler fish, fake electors, uh, alleged fake electors, who are also charged. Um, Tell me a little bit about their status in Georgia and what people are saying in terms of whether some of these people might agree to testify, i.e. might flip, try to get out of trouble. Yeah, so it's important to you know extend on the conversation about RICO is that the prosecution, the district attorney's office, basically grouped all of these different actions in the post-election time into buckets of different efforts to subvert the election. I mean, the buckets range from creating and distributing false electoral college documents to solicitation of state legislatures and high-ranking state officials to harassment and intimidation of Fulton County election worker Ruby Friedman, like David mentioned. And so some of the lesser-known pieces of this are the buckets dealing with the fake electoral college documents and the harassment of the poll workers and uh, the unlawful breach of election equipment in Georgia and elsewhere. So first, you've got the uh, fake electoral college documents. There were 16 electors in Georgia, 16 electoral college votes, 16 Republicans signed documents falsely claiming that they were Georgia's official electors. Only three of them are under indictment. The rest of them, we know, took uh, – some of them were offered immunity from the district attorney's office. Uh, we know that from court filings made beforehand. But the three that do face charges, one is the former chairman of the Georgia Republican Party, David Schaefer, who helped organize that meeting and was the lead signer and spread a lot of false information about the election after the fact. One is Sean Still. He is a current state senator and former just you know volunteer with the Republican Party. He was the secretary on those documents, signing his name, saying that he was the secretary of the Electoral College meeting. And the third is Kathy Latham. She's a rural Republican Party activist who is also facing charges for her role in the other bucket of uh, unlawful access to voting equipment down in rural Coffee County. Sidney Powell led a group of people down to copy election data from just about every piece of equipment in that rural county office and their efforts to find fraud. So that's why those three are the only ones charged and the other 13 are not under indictment. And uh, I will say quickly, the point about people that maybe won't go to trial, three people were charged in connection with the harassment of the Fulton County poll worker, one, a former publicist for Kanye West, one, an Illinois chaplain who came down, and one, a founder of the Black Voices for Trump coalition. All three of them tried to pressure this election official to falsely admit that she did fraud. Um, Some of them will probably go to trial as part of the prosecution's proof that this is a multi-pronged, sprawling effort, but probably not all of them will go to trial because you really just need one person to prove that part of the conspiracy. And some of that is on tape too. Um, Brad emails, while I'm no fan of Donald Trump, does anyone think we're setting a very dangerous precedent? Are Republican-leaning prosecutors just going to go after Democrats in a similar fashion, David Becker? 
Well, I mean, there's always the chance that someone will violate their oath and not follow where the laws and the facts might take them. But I, I don't think that's really a concern here. I think when someone breaks the law, and we're seeing this from prosecutors, Republicans and Democrats across the spectrum, they're following where the laws and facts go. And this is a particularly unusual, egregious case where we had an acting president of the United States work allegedly to overthrow the results of an election which he lost. Well, a lot of our listeners have been asking, can a convicted felon even be president? Constitutional scholars have been sounding off this week about that, so we're going to talk about it too, right after this. This message comes from NPR sponsor Made in Cookware. Did you know that many popular dishes in Tom Colicchio's craft restaurant are made in Made in Cookware? Maiden supplies chefs with high-end cookware because Maiden makes exactly what demanding chefs look for. When you level up your cooking, remember what great dishes on menus worldwide have in common. They're Maiden Maiden. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from the 18th until the 27th. Visit MaidenCookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N Cookware.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the American Cancer Society. By the end of this message, two people will be told they have cancer. Yes, every 15 seconds, someone is diagnosed with cancer. But by the end of this message, you could do something about it with your donation. A gift of any amount to the American Cancer Society can help those facing cancer get free rides to care or a free place to stay closer to treatment. Donate today at cancer.org. Let's get back to our conversation on the latest legal challenges facing Donald Trump and all of his co-conspirators in Georgia. There's been a lot of writing in legal circles among legal scholars and some really, really hefty big names. People like Lawrence Tribe, J. Michael Ludick, who you remember appeared before the January 6th committee, revered conservative judge of the Federalist Society. They, they have been writing this week that the 14th Amendment, Section 3 – automatically disqualifies Donald Trump from ever being president again. And Jeff emails this. We've heard several law scholars saying that Trump is indeed automatically disqualified from holding the office of president due to the 14th Amendment. How would this actually be put into play, though, considering the divided Congress we presently have? Mary McCord, this has never been done. I I encourage people to go back and read some of the writing in The Atlantic, some of the articles that are coming out arguing that somebody's going to have to invoke the Constitution's clear instruction that nobody who's taken the oath of office and then participated in an insurrection or rebellion or given aid and comfort to the same can ever take the oath again. That's essentially what it says. It's never been done before, really, at least not at this level. How does it, how would it work? Where do we go? Well, just to start from where you, where you ended that question, I mean, this, this provision was added as a result of the Civil War, right? This is part of the 14th Amendment. Um, and it was because there were efforts at that time to send some com- you know, Confederate officials to Congress. And this was uh, included in that constitutional amendment, the 14th Amendment, Section 3, and those many of those um, Confederates were disqualified from office. Now, there is a, a remedy in the 
provision that would allow Congress to remove this disability, is what they call it, this disqualification by a two-thirds vote of each house. But to your primary question, how would this get teed up? Um, That's kind of the interesting question because the provision reads very much just like a prohibition, but how do you actually enforce that? So one possibility is that the officials in each state who are responsible for putting people on the ballot, whether that's the Secretary of State or some other state official who by state law has that authority, could decide that Donald Trump engaged in insurrection or rebellion uh, or gave aid and comfort to those who were engaged in insurrection or rebellion, and I'm going to keep him off of the ballot. Now, that would, of course, be immediately challenged by Mr. Trump uh, in court, and then that's how a court case could get teed up. It's also possible that um, voters um, in a state or some other individuals that could prove standing, prove some sort of injury um, sufficient to confer uh, what's called standing under the law, meaning that you know not just anybody can bring a lawsuit anytime they don't like something. They have to have suffered some concrete in, uh, in, injury that's redressable by the court. It's possible voters could try to tee up some sort of court case uh, seeking a declaratory judgment, um, meaning a declaration of law by a court that says, Donald Trump, you are ineligible uh, because you've committed, engaged in insurrection or rebellion. And then, of course, there's the possibility uh, that if he were to be convicted of a crime that seems to be have its own elements of insurrection, rebellion, or aid and comfort to those engaged in that, that that could be at least a basis for saying this qualifies. Now, I will say Mr. Trump has not been charged in any of these cases with uh, seditious conspiracy, you know, sedition really being using um, force against the government to prevent um, the uh, actual execution of federal law. Uh, he has not been charged with inciting an insurrection. So nothing that he's been charged with has sort of the direct language of insurrection or rebellion, although all so many of these charges in both the Jack Smith January 6th related case and now the Fonnie Willis Georgia case really do smack of insurrection because we're talking mm. about an effort to override the will of, of the voters. Well, let's um, talk I about the say, Secretaries of yeah. State part of that just for one second because one of the scenarios that Mary McCord just laid out, David Becker, is that Secretaries of State who are responsible for the ballot could say, I've got the authority to keep my ballot clean of violators of the 14th Amendment, Section 3. You know, swing states, important swing states, this does not necessarily come down to party. There are many, many Republicans of of good conscience, especially when it comes to clean elections. But a secretary of state in Arizona, for instance, who is a firebrand, that state used to have Republican leadership. It's now Democratic. Michigan, Pennsylvania. Um, Stephen, I'm going to ask you about Georgia, but David Becker, um, secretaries of state there. What's the scenario where one of them says this candidate is not qualified? Yeah, Mary laid it out quite well. I mean, what would what would happen is election officials have to lay out the ballot to determine qualifications. You can imagine, for instance, if someone who was, you know, 25 years old wanted to run for president, that's a really easy decision on qualifications. They are not old enough to run for president under the Constitution. Presumably, either the Secretary of State or the chief election official would hold some kind of ruling with regard to that, some kind of administrative ruling. And as Mary suggested, either um, the candidate themselves would challenge that in court or the secretary of state or the election official could bring an affirmative action to do so. It's really important from this perspective that 
regardless of whether you think this Section 3 of the 14th Amendment applies here, this get decided before the election because you want to make sure that someone who may the Supreme Court might hold is not qualified to hold federal office under the 14th Amendment. You don't want that happening after an election in which that person seemingly appeared to win. Yes. So it is, it is really important here, and there's a lot of ongoing legal disagreement about whether or not the 14th Amendment applies here, and that's a worthy discussion, and there's no question the Supreme Court has not firmly ruled on this, but that it has to happen well in advance of the 2020 election, or 2024 election, rather, and before ballots are printed. So voters have a real choice and know whether or not they can, their vote for a particular candidate will count and get that person elected. Well, Ted got to us from Alabama and left this message. It took this long, and it actually has this much resistance in a country so supposedly on based on rule of law or, in the Republican sense, law and order. I heard Jill Weinbank on uh, NPR comparing this to Nixon, and she made a great point that in this one, she's more worried about the state of democracy and our future, as am I. How are we going to recover from this, even if he is indicted? And if he's not indicted, we're screwed. Well, he is indicted, so that part's off the table for you, Ted. But David Becker, why don't you take that one, recovering from this? Yeah, there's been years and years of lies about our democracy, and we're seeing tens of millions of American citizens be very resilient against the truth that the 2020 election has been confirmed and verified, and there's no question that Joe Biden won that election by a fairly significant margin, at least as it's measured in the 21st century. This is going to take years and years to get past um, and to rebuild Americans' trust in elections. It's not going to be fixed by one election or one indictment, but it is really important that accountability for those that have spread these lies and led to the distrust in our democracy, whether it's at the criminal level, as we're seeing now, whether it's at the civil level with defamation suits against Fox News, for instance, or whether it's at the professional level with disbarment proceedings. Those are all important first steps. We need to see accountability for those who, through political expedience or outright grift, have decided that they're going to spread lies about our democracy and our fellow citizens. Uh, Mary, I want to end with you. We have so many cases swirling. Um, We're going to have, I think, a long period before we ever get to trial in any of these cases. But as the news pours in, the fire hose of motions and meetings and hearings, what should we really be looking out for? What's the most important thing over the next, you know, four weeks and, and, and couple months here? Well, as you indicated, we have each one of these prosecutions, we have the prosecutors, you know, seeking a speedy trial. And, and you normally you think of the defendant seeking the speedy trial, but the speedy trial clause of the Constitution does apply to the, the society's interest in large in a speedy trial. So if the prosecutors were sort of to get their way under the current schedule, we'd have the the Jack Smith January 6th related case going to trial in January, Fonnie Willis in uh, uh, March, uh, later on, um, Alvin Bragg also in March and then Jack Smith again in May in Florida in the Mar-a-Lago case. That is extremely, extremely aggressive. I mean, that is a lot of cases for a defense attorney to prepare for. And even though Mr. Trump certainly has abundant of his own resources, he so far has not really been deploying those to, to beef up his staff of lawyers, which still remains rather, rather thin. So I think some of the thing that we'll be seeing in these next few weeks is how are courts going to respond to Mr. Trump and his 
his team saying, we need more time. In the Jack Smith um, January 6th related case, they're asking for April 2026. Mm. I don't think that's going to be successful, but I think seeing which, if any of these trials, might actually take place before the election, that's really what we're looking for and right And that now. is where the accountability lies, the next thing to watch out for. I want to thank our great guest. That was Mary McCord, Executive Director of Georgetown Law's Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, also co-host of the Prosecuting Donald Trump podcast with former prosecutor Andrew Weissman. Also, Stephen Fowler, he's a reporter at Georgia Public Broadcasting, and David Becker, Executive Director and Founder of the Center for Election Innovation and Research. Today's show was produced by Arfi Getty and edited by Matthew Simonson. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington. It's distributed by NPR. I'm Todd Zwillick with Vice News. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor Project Lead the Way. Today's world is driven by STEM. At Project Lead the Way, they believe learning by doing helps every student in every grade be STEM successful. Learn more at pltw.org NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capital One. With the Spark Cash Plus card, you earn unlimited 2% cash back on every purchase for your business. Find out more at CapitalOne.com slash SparkCashPlus. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I I just started doing research. But the truth is, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.